This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who are we speaking to today? Sarge, we are speaking with Dr. William Stoltz, who is a National Security Advisor working in the Australian Public Service in Canberra. As well as his work in the public sector, Will is a visiting fellow at ANU's National Security College and recently completed his PhD, achieving a doctorate in national security policy. Will is passionate about encouraging people to pursue a career in the public service, particularly in national, in national security and encouraging younger folks to do further academic research after uh, uni and high school. Will, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. And you are one of the first people that we've had on that has worked in that is working in the public sector. So um, keen to get into that and into your academic um, side of things as well. So why don't you spin us through what you're doing in your day-to-day job? Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks again for having me on. You know, uh, it's it's excellent to be able to bring a bit of a different perspective to this program. I know you've, you've had a, a range of people and I thought, you know, it'd be lovely to chat about um, all the options that are out there for those more patriotically minded uh, among your listeners who want to go out and serve their country in the public service and perhaps in the national security space as well. Um, so at the moment, I work in an um, agency related to law enforcement and domestic security um, and kind of the rest of my public service career leading up to this point has been um, kind of in that space, but also in the Department of Defence in strategic policy roles. Um, so working alongside uh, civilian personnel as well as people in the military. Um, and I guess alongside my uh, professional career is also what I call, I guess, my academic pursuits, my academic career. Um, so as you mentioned, I've just recently finished my um, PhD at the ANU and continue to hold a role of a, a visiting fellowship there, which allows me to engage in publishing articles and helping teach courses and that kind of thing. Um, again, kind of relating to national security and, and public policy. So that's kind of how I split my time at the moment. Um, yeah, and, and I just thought, you know, it'd be great to be able to chat about uh, the different avenues that are out there for your listeners in terms of um, trying out a public service career, maybe if they're stepping out of the corporate space or just or starting their careers from scratch. What drew you to the uh, public service, Will? Yeah, sure. I guess, you know, I've, I've always had a pretty overriding kind of passion for like the big issues of the day, like, um, you know, the kind of big questions about the nature of our, our country, the nature of the international system. And I really just wanted to be as close to the kind of big strategic decisions that were being made about those questions as possible. Um, and in reality, you know, you can influence things. Um, you know, the corporate sector does have a degree of influence on public policy, so does academia. But the reality is, is you've got to be in the public service to really be helping to shape the decisions that are being made and the advice that's going to, you know, the key decision makers, which in our system is obviously ministers, prime ministers and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I guess that's kind of my, my broad overarching passion. You know, I, I started my academic studies at Melbourne uni. I was doing a, a bachelor of arts, a kind of third year, like a lot of art students think, and you're like, Oh God, how am I actually going to like make something of this? And I saw a lot of people I knew who were going off to study law 
And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer. Um, but then I, I was, I was kind of thinking about like, well, what am I really passionate about? And I kind of settled on like national security as kind of a broad theme and looked around at where I could really sink my teeth into that and where I could study it. Um, and at that point in time, there really was no other place other than the National Security College at the ANU, and um, which is in Canberra. And I think anyone who is really serious about wanting to get involved in um, public policy, particular public policy issues relating to um, international relations, defence, security, you really do need to go to Canberra. So I packed my bags and left little old Melbourne to go uh, even little old Canberra. <laughs> that, that's something I want to get into as well, maybe in a, in a little while in terms of your um, decision to pack up shop and, and move to a different city, which has mm. been a kind of consistent theme of people that are, you know, taking, you know, if you perceive it to be a risk and that come on the show, they move shop to wherever else they're going, which is an interesting one. But can you just run us through for people that might be say at high school and haven't done these subjects yet? Like what is public policy and what is someone that's working in the government, working on pub, a public policy? What are they actually doing? Yeah, no, and that, that's a that's a really pertinent question because it's like you can see all the different departments with their different titles and then you see like people's like, you know, there's there's lots of different titles people have like, oh, they might be an advisor or they might be strategic policy or public policy or this kind of stuff. Ultimately, any job that you do in the public service really boils down to, in my mind, to one of two functions. You're either doing work that is advisory so you're advising decision makers ultimately ministers um or you're doing i guess what you might call kind of operational activities stuff that's actually implementing policy so you're either you're either advising on what the policy should be or you're going out and implementing the policy and that can be you know whether you're um in the military going on a military deployment and engaging in you know military activity overseas that's implementing a policy you know the government's made a decision um, to deploy forces overseas so you're implementing a policy decision um and also you know there's roles where you might be presenting government with options over any range of issues so i guess broadly speaking that's kind of how i would categorize it the form that takes obviously does vary um depending on what type of policy area you're you're thinking about um, but yeah, broadly, that's kind of how I, in a nutshell, describe it. And where would you say that uh, you've spent the lion's share of your time within those two buckets? Yeah, the, the bulk of my career has been more in that advisory um, function. So, you know, I've been a strategic policy advisor in the Defence Department, which, you know, involves kind of looking at international security issues are out, out, that are out there, um, looking at the military capabilities that are available to Australia's defence forces and providing advice to senior um, executives in the public service, as well as ministers about options that they might have. Um, and that's kind of similarly what I'm now doing in a kind of domestic security context as well. And I think this is something that, um, you know, people who are looking at particularly roles in national security probably need to think about really clearly is like, what are the decisions that you really want to help influence? Like, is it those big picture strategic decisions about like, you know, what's Australia's place in the world? How secure are we as a country? What are we going to do in the next decade? Or are you more interested in, I want to be involved in stopping the bad guy. Like I want to be the one that kicks down the door or puts the cuffs on them or holds the rifle, that kind of thing. Because I think, and I've observed it where people enter, you know, national security space in particular. And I think they, they want to work for, 
you know, the intelligence agencies in particular, because that's very sexy. And that's where a lot of like, you know, all the myths and all the stuff in our, our pop culture kind of draws people to, but then they realize like when they get into those organizations that, Oh, they don't actually, they're not actually really interested in those kind of really operational tactical decisions. What they really want to be influencing is the big decisions that are being made by ministers and their staff and that type of thing. And so they then want to pivot back to, um, yeah, different, different roles. So as I, as I say, like, I think it's important for people at the early stage in their career to, yeah, sit down, be reflective, think about, you know, what are the decisions that you really want to influence? What are you passionate about? And maybe drive your career according to that rather than kind of the, you know, the superficial external kind of things that we often think about when we think about national security. And is it fair to say that national security encompasses things like food security, climate security, all of that stuff, not just the, you know, going out and making sure that our borders are secure? Yeah, absolutely. And in in that regard, um, it's quite difficult, like in an academic sense to actually define what national security is because it, it does overlap quite closely with a lot of policy, uh, other different ways of thinking about policy. So like, for example, climate change, like that's an issue that I suppose in recent decades has become what we call securitized. So there are people in the national security community and intelligence who now think about that as a security issue. But equally, you could talk about climate change as being an environmental policy issue or an economic policy issue. So there's these problems out there which can overlap. And I suppose when we come to define something as being a national security problem or not, it's really more of a practical one of whether, you know, you look at all the different tools of government, tools of power that are out there, and you say, which one of these tools is going to be best addressed, best suited for addressing this problem? Um, but it is a real challenge because, you know, we have a national security kind of ecosystem, if we can call it that, of different agencies and departments that are very much a legacy of the threats that we've seen before, right? You know, many of the organisations that uh, lead the national security apparatus in Australia were born out of a time when um, the greatest threats to Australia were, you know, nation states and terrorists and what we call malicious actors. But obviously, you know, the last, you know, 12, 18 months with the emergence of COVID-19 pandemics is kind of, should be really alerting people to the fact that there are things that can threaten you know, existentially threaten our nation and our society that you can't really describe in that way. Like, it's not like there's a malicious actor behind the pandemic. The pandemic just happens. That's just the environment. Um, but it has a massive impact on, you know, the security and safety of our society. So um, the organisation, you know, the organisations in the national security space are kind of always on a bit of a pressure to adapt and change and anticipate those different emerging threats that might be out there. And in the security world, like who dictates where you focus your time? Because like Luke and I both work in the private sector and how that works is we'll have a client and a client will come to a PwC or Norton Rose and say, hey, we want to do X, Y, Z. How can you help us? And that will be the the basis of our contract with them. Like does does a minister come to you or your team and say, hey, we're thinking about this. Um, Can you do some research or come up with some ideas? Yeah, look, it can happen. It, it can happen like that, where um, you know, a an idea might emerge in a ministerial office, either from advisors or from the minister themselves, and they might kind of broadly say, like, you know, I want to do more on 
child exploitation or I want to do more on organized crime. And they'll kind of say to the public service, give me some, give me some options, you know, and those options might be here's some legislative change that we could make that kind of give agencies different powers or impose different kind of criminal penalties. Or it could be, uh, here's a fancy new piece of technology that if you invest in, it will give us, you know, this kind of new capability. Um, but it's also, you know, in the national security space, it is very reactive. You know, it's very much responding to the threats as they emerge. And that will often dictate the, the priority that's, you know, placed on it. And obviously, you know, governments of the day, once they're elected, they, they generally will lay out a kind of broad agenda of the issues that they want most attention given to. Um, you know, in the national security space, it is interesting though, because most of the intelligence agencies do have a legislated function or role. So, you know, they, um, you know, for example, they might be only allowed to collect intelligence overseas. And so their powers can't be applied domestically. So a minister can't really say to a, an agency, oh, well, you're doing all this amazing intelligence collection overseas. Can we just spin you around and point you internally? Like there's obviously some pretty important demarcations when it comes to these kind of extraordinary powers that the agencies have. And Will, you've mentioned the word a couple of times already, and that's risk. Is it a lot of your work? Is it basically a, a process of calculating risk, measuring risk, and then weighting that risk in the recommendations that you make to, to ministers or whoever is your client for that particular piece of work? Or is it kind of a different approach that, that's more or less than that? No, that that is pretty much how it is. You know, like um, particularly when you're making decisions that are based on intelligence products. So in, intelligence, if I'll just deviate slightly, you know, we talk about um, intelligence and information. Intelligence is information that has gone through a process of verifying it. So you'll never have an intelligence product that will say like, well, typically you won't have an intelligence product that will say definitively, this is what's happening. It will generally say there's a high degree of likelihood this is happening, or there's a, you know, possible, this is possible, or this is unlikely. And so when you are um, using that intelligence to inform policy decisions, yeah, you are having to talk about risk and say, look, you know, with the information available to us and the time that we've got to make this decision, here's what we think is happening and here's the decision that we think you should make. However, there are always, you know, here's the risks associated because we don't know everything. You know, we don't know, um, you know, we might not know exactly how much uh, this is going to cost us over the long run. Um, here's some event, here's some potential events that could change the situation. And I think that's, you know, that's the real great challenge for ministers in particular is that they often have to make policy decisions with an incomplete amount of information. Um, but, you know, indecision and not, and not making a decision is in of itself also a decision as well. I love that you mentioned um, the, the different levels of opinion, Will, because I think that's something that when I started working, you, you just write, oh, you know, it will be this or it will be that. Yeah. And it's like, well, hang on, you don't actually know that. Even if you want to convey that you might know, it's like, well, you need to tone your language accordingly because no one wants to accept the responsibility for saying something will happen and then not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in the national security space that can have really, you know, really hardcore implications, right? Like you can look at um, the war in Iraq, for example, which was kind of a product of people doing just that saying kind of having a bit of a bias and saying a little too firmly, this is what's happening 
as opposed to saying like, oh, balance of probability, we can't really be sure. Um, and it can have, you know, it can have massive consequences. Well, in spirit of a very loose segue, we want, I want to take the mental model of risk and kind of how you make decisions when you don't really kind of know what's coming out in the future. Do you want to walk us through what you were thinking? You know, you mentioned you did a Bachelor of Arts and you got to the end of it. You're like, oh, what do I actually do now? Um, I've got plenty of decisions that uh, uh, options ahead of me. Um, what did you do next and, and how did you make that decision and go through that process? Yeah, sure. Um, it, you know, as I said before, like I had a pretty, I guess I was lucky that I had a pretty clear sense of, of what I was passionate about. So making the decision to come to Canberra to start my, you know, start my professional career kind of, I didn't really see another option. I was like, well, I really want to follow this path looking at these types of problems. So that's where I'm going. Um, and from there, I guess, you know, so I finished my bachelor of arts at, at Melbourne Union and started um, the advanced masters of national security at the, the ANU, um, which is just an amazing program. You know, it's, it's, and ANU has a real edge in this regard in that many of the courses that they're teaching, particularly in policy-related stuff, you're being taught by people who are, have worked in the public service, so they're really grounding what they're teaching you in a practical experience. And, you know, I was working alongside people who uh, – sorry, I was studying alongside people who, you know, were, were full-time students like myself, but then you have people who are part-time students from the military and the public service, and learning from other students was just, just amazing. So – I then was able to kind of start my public service career, I guess, in a kind of a bit of a roundabout fashion. I actually entered into the Department of Social Services actually as a contractor because when I was um, finishing my, my master's uh, in Canberra, there was actually a public service freeze, which meant that the only way for a short period of time or about a 12-month period of time, the only way you could actually enter the federal public service at that time was through the graduate programs. And the graduate programs are, as I'm sure you guys know, like with some of the corporate graduate programs are so competitive and, um, you know, not to, not to, uh, cast dispersions or belittle those people who got in with graduate programs. They are kind of like a lottery in the sense that, you know, for some departments in, in the public service, you will have several thousands of applicants, like three, four, 5,000 applicants. And the team that's responsible for managing those programs is sometimes three people, you know, so the ability to actually kind of filter through it. So that's something I'd say to people who are listening and are really like, you know, really wedded to wanting to enter through a particular graduate program is be mindful that you might think that you're the best possible candidate you've done. You've ticked all the right boxes in terms of what you studied, in terms of your work experience, that kind of stuff, but don't be wedded to just one way of entry be open-minded, be um, flexible. You know, like I started, um, as I say, in the Department of Social Services, but once I was in the public service, it gave me a lot more lateral movement to then move into the Department of Defence, which was kind of where more closer to what I was passionate about. And, yeah, so I think people need to be, need to be creative about how they, um, how they start their careers because, yeah, you can always change around. You can always change direction once you started and, you know, you're not fixed not fixed into your first job essentially. And once you get that opportunity to, you can then show how good you are and how interested you are in something and you get to deal with people directly and have those conversations. And it becomes less about luck and more about uh, who you speak to, how you hold yourself and, and what you say in those environments. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, like you also need to be, you, you, re, you need to realize you might not actually, 
you think you might want a particular job or a particular career path, but once you start it, you might realize, oh, this is actually not at all what I'm interested in. Um, and so I think, yeah, people who have a really, really rigid, um, strict kind of five-year plan for their career are probably closing themselves off to options that if they're a little bit more open to kind of the opportunities that arise. And as you say, in terms of relationships they might make and the insights they get from other people, um, yeah, they might be able to find themselves on a completely different direction. Um, and, you know, yeah, you mentioned like the role of like building relationships and building networks. Like that is that is really quite vital, I think, to um, testing the ideas about where you think your career should be heading. And, you know, I think it is really valuable to have people around you who can give you some frank advice as well. You can say, look, like you're going down dead end here, like you really need to reevaluate X, Y, Z. You know, you might need to build build up a bit more maturity in these areas before you start applying for these jobs, that kind of stuff. So I think it is important to surround yourself with some people who you know are going to give you that, those kind of hard truths, I suppose, sometimes. <laughs> with that, I think something that's come up a fair bit is that people know that they have to do that kind of thing, but a lot of people might look at themselves as more introverted than extroverted, for example, and they get into a new environment and that's a really hard thing to do. Like, do you have any tips or things that you've seen people um, do to make that process a little bit easier and, and find those mentor kind of figures in, in the workforce or in uni or anything like that, that make that a bit easier and you can get that advice from those different people? Yeah, look, it is hard. And, and I, and I take your point, like, you know, I'm kind of a, a bit more of an extroverted person. So I'm um, probably a little bit more comfortable with just kind of randomly going up to someone you know, like I've, I've kind of shirt fronted people in weird spots, like seeing people at the airport and the other side of the room. And I've just like made a beeline for them or like, you know, cornered them at an event and that kind of stuff. And, and but look with that, like what, 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 what's going on in your head? Are you like, I'm going to talk to this person randomly and then get onto a conversation to talk about X, Y, and Z that I want to talk about, or is it, you just want to talk to them? Oh, uh, look, it's, it's often that you're, that I just want to talk to them. And, and, you know, like, you, you should never go up to a random person to say, give me a job. I'm amazing. Like, <laughs> I think the, the best conversations I've had, like, like that kind of just cold start with someone I know who's, you know, further along in their career, that kind of thing is generally when it's like, if I'm aware of their work, you know, if I might've read an article they've published or a policy paper or something like that, or, or know that they have a particular expertise like I might, I'll go up and, and kind of say, oh, like I saw this article, like you, you said X, Y, Z, I've got a different opinion or why, why do you think that kind of thing? And actually just have like a, you know, just have a general conversation with them. Like, um, and, and it, look, 99% of the time people are more than willing to have a chat. Like, I think it's, you can get, um, you know, you can get a bit starstruck and say like, oh, that person's, you know, really high up in this organization and they've done all these amazing things and who am I to, like they, they wouldn't want to talk to me. But in my experience, the vast majority of people really love actually helping, you know, giving a bit of guidance and actually helping mentor others. You know, it's it's been interesting to observe in my public service career, like everyone who gets anywhere is is getting there by having a um, being pulled along by someone who's kind of mentoring them. And it's something that even myself, like, even though, you know, I'm not super high up or anything, but like I've already made a point of like, you know, when I meet people, uh, when I'm teaching at uni or other things I'm doing, I'll make a point of saying like, Hey, do you want to have a chat? Come have a coffee. Like if you need a reference for a thing, help you out, you know, because I'm mindful that it's like, I want to see really good people. And I think this is the mindset of everyone, right? Like you want to see the best people in your, your field of employment. Like you want to make sure that 
people who are really bright, really hardworking and getting where they need to be. So you kind of got a vested interest in taking some time to, to pull people up. So, I mean, that's not really a, a tip or a trick, I guess. It's like, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have a degree of confidence to kind of just shirt front someone and just or bail them up in an event. Um, but in my experience, most people are more than willing, like the vast majority of people are more than willing to give you their time and, um, you know, meet with you for a coffee or exchange a couple of emails. But I guess, as I say, like be, maybe just think about like, what are the questions you want to ask them? What's the discussion you want to have as opposed to just being able to say, oh, I met that really important person. You know, I think you need to have a degree of humility too, as well as a confidence to be able to sit there and yeah. listen to someone and, and, and be able to ask them a question. And if they give you an answer that you didn't expect, like to be able to swallow that, like say if you said, I don't know, like I'm doing X and they're like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Then you've got to be willing to actually take that on board and move forward with that as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah. You can't, um, you know, you can't just walk in the room and just think like, I'm the most amazing piece of real estate out here. Like, come on, like, you know, I should, I should, I should already be having a job as a, you know, as a 30 year old person that the rest of you all had when you were 60, that kind of thing. Like you need to be open-minded that there's always things for you to learn, that there's experiences that you actually do need to have to kind of test yourself, you know, and in public policy, like I think um, Luke, you mentioned, the the word um judgment before you know judgment is one of those things that when you have like if you're going to have a senior role in the public service particularly in the national security space your judgment is essentially your greatest asset and judgment is one of those things like when you're having to weigh up different options and there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer but you have to make a call and say we're going in this direction uh it's your the strength of your judgment that will get you through that that but judgment is not something that you can, you know, you can't learn good judgment at uni. There's not a course on being like how to have good judgment. Judgment's a combination of sure, like your expertise and your subject matter knowledge, but it is also something that's informed by your experiences. Generally the experiences of where you failed. Like, and that's the thing, everyone who occupies, you know, senior leadership roles in any organization, you know, you can look at their resume and think, Oh, they've just had this amazing, like one great step after another, but what's never in someone's resume is all the jobs they didn't get. It's all the failures they had. And those um, those experiences is often what's refining someone's ability to make really good decisions. Absolutely. And it would seem reading your resume that the academic side of things might be something that is helping you kind of inform that judgment piece in terms of being a, um, a subject matter expert that brings something different to the table. Do you want to talk us through why you've kind of focused on sticking around in academia alongside your work as well? Yeah, look, you know, part of it's just an intellectual curiosity thing is that I want to be able to continue to dive into some of the big picture issues I'm passionate about, you know, in particular, like international security issues, which you can't always do in a professional context. You know, you've got a particular job that's got um, particular remit of what you can write about and what you can look into. So being keeping my hand in an academic space allows me to kind of deep dive into doing some long form research and all, to- all sorts of things. Um, like for example, like, uh, a couple of friends of mine at the national security and I, uh, national security college and I, um, we've, uh, put together a grant application to look at, um, historically, uh, instances of when, um, folks in the army have been radicalized, you know, which is kind of an issue. It's like, you know, it's a broad hist- historical kind of investigation. You couldn't do it in the public service, but you know, it's something I want to, you know, look into. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think like, 
one of the other valuable things has been having a side hustle, having a kind of different um, focus for your energies is often really valuable when you're in a part of your career where it feels like a bit of a slump, like, because you feel like, all right, well, you know, I might, my job might be a little bit boring now, or I might not have the best professional relationships at the moment, or, you know, I'm waiting for that next opportunity. But if, if I've got another thing where I can direct my energies and get fulfillment from, it's, it's kind of quite from, I guess, from a mental health point of view, it's good to know. It's like, well, I can still draw a sense of fulfillment and momentum and success from this other thing. And I think, you know, we always can feel very tempted to kind of define ourselves by our careers, which means as a result, our sense of worth can be really hit when you get, you know, when you experience failure professionally, you th- you can take that really to heart and say, well, I as a person have failed. Like if that's what you're, if that's how you're identifying yourself. So I think it is really important to have other pursuits around your job and, you know, and, and, you know, eventually like it's always good for your side hustle to become your main hustle at one point. So, you know, it's, it's kind of also part of keeping options out there. Um, you know, speaking more about what I guess I've drawn from my academic work into my professional context, um, you know, doing a, doing a PhD has made my ability to write and read and consume information just so much better. Um, you know, I did a, a PhD that relied a lot on kind of looking at source material in archives and that kind of thing. So my ability to um, just really quickly triage and process information has really improved out of sight. I think that my ability to to write, you know, clearly and express complex ideas in a sharp way has really been honed. And I think um, that's why I guess I would advocate like, you know, I'm not saying everyone should go do further postgraduate study, but, you know, try and read a broad amount of material, not just tailored to something that's like, you know, directly related to your work, read, read a broad around amount of things um, and try and hone your skills by, you know, you know, if you want to write an op-ed or you want to write, um, you know, a blog piece or whatever it might be, like find ways to kind of sharpen your skills outside of a professional context as well. Because I think, yeah, if you're just writing, the, if you're just writing emails every day, writing the same types of documents every day, you can find that you're not necessarily, yeah, honing honing your skills in, in a way that might be a bit better for your work. Yeah, oh, and useful in your life more generally, right? Like if, if I sit there and write emails and draft contracts all day, every day, I might get really good at doing that, but does it, is that going to help me specifically in other areas of my life? Maybe not. Um, yeah. Mate, I think, I think that's great. And just before we wrap up, you've spoken about the importance of judgment, being able to, uh, I guess, get through heaps of data and information pretty quickly and summarize that effectively. What are some other key skills that people getting into the public service generally or kind of national security positions um, would need to be a really good person in, in that job? Yeah, look, that's, that's a, a great question. And I'm, and I'm going to give a, I guess, a biased answer to that. You know, I've, I would regard myself as a historian first and kind of student of history. And I think one of the things that is really lacking in the national security space and the policy offices that I see is a really strong historical um, awareness, you know, uh, and being able to contextualize what what's happening in the world right now in a historical way. You know, we are, we are at a moment in, in Australia's history and global history um, that is quite a tipping point. We're being shaped by some really massive forces. You know, you're seeing um, the rise of China and China engaging in some pretty bellicose kind of forceful behavior on the international stage. 
And if you're trying to make sense of that and where Australia sits in relation to that and where all the other countries in our region that, that are affecting this situation, where they sit, you need to have a broad appreciation of their history because that's what their context is. That's how you can start to understand and contextualise their behaviour and identify where their behaviour might be different from our own, right? Like one of the great problems when we're talking about strategic decision-making around international security and the way countries behave is that we often project our own form of rationality and our own form of decision-making on others. And we say, well, if we were them, how would we behave? What decisions would we make? But that's the wrong place to start. You need to understand um, the context they're coming from. So I think that's that would improve out of sight our ability to kind of um, be creative because, you know, when it comes to uh, policy decisions and good policy making, it is actually about imagination. It's actually a very creative process because you've got to look at a, at a problem and try and think about it in a lateral way and find a solution. Um, and yeah, you can have a great, you know, great uni qualifications behind you, great work experience. You know, you, you might know how to, do the mechanics really well. But if you don't have a creative mind and you can't think outside the box better than another person, you're not really adding any additional value. And how do you recommend a student adopts that historian's perspective so they can bring that creative mind to, to looking at these problems? Yeah, I think, you know, you have to read broadly, right? You have to, um, you know, it's important. I think it's vitally important for anyone involved in public policy to be reading the papers most days. You know, you, you need to be looking at that. Um, but, you know, God forbid you pick up a biography of a president or a prime minister or, or read a bit of Australian history. I know it's not that sexy, but you can it can get interesting. Well, it's not that um, much of it, you, so you can get through it pretty quickly. <laughs> you can, you can. <laughs> you know, and there's you know, like there's a lot of interesting journals out there, like even things like reading, you know, um, reading The Economist, reading The Atlantic, these are kind of articles that might be like, you know, 1,500, 2,000 words, like kind of short, sharp, but gives you a real, um, a bit more of an insight than you might get through the normal kind of media that you're consuming. And, you know, it's it's really interesting the amount of times where I might be reading a piece on one topic and then I, an idea will just pop up and be like, oh, actually, that kind of sounds like a familiar problem to what I'm encountering in my work. Um, and so I guess it, you know, you've got to have a discipline for consuming information in a, um, in a diverse way. And that's hard these days, right? Like, you know, like our attention spans are just shot. Like they really are. I know mine are like doing a PhD made me realize how much, like all the technology that we've got at our fingertips has just like annihilated my attention span. Um, so I think sometimes, you know, it is, it's that hard process of like, no, I'm going to sit down, put my phone away. I'm going to read a book for 30 minutes. Like, but you've got to do it because you are a product of the information that you consume. So if you're only consuming, you know, what you're streaming in on social media or maybe scrolling through on news.com.au, like, and they're a fine outlet. <laughs> um, but if that's all you're getting, then you're not getting enough, right? And uh, listen to more podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, you know, I think they're a great way to um, really consume otherwise complex information in a really good way. So, you know, you guys are in the right, in the right section of the market at the moment. Unreal. Well, I think um, that the tagline of you are a product of the information you consume will be uh, what, what features from this episode. So um, just want to say thanks, Will, for coming on the show. We've had a great time today talking to you about what the public sector looks like to, to work in and, and the different ways that you guys operate and what's happening in the defense space. So thank you very much. 
No, thank you guys. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure and, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I think it's, it's, it's an awesome project that you're working on here. Unreal. Thanks for coming on, Will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.